Is that better? Everybody can hear me now? Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 16. So we've been coming through the Gospel of Matthew together. We're in Matthew 16, verse 1 through 12. This passage, Matthew 16, verse 1 through 12, can be broken up into two parts. Verses 1 through 4, we see Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And verses 5 through 12, it's connected because Jesus begins to warn his disciples about the leaven of those Pharisees and Sadducees. So let's pray, and we'll read this text and dig in together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would give us help, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes of faith to see. Lord, help us to see the glory of Christ. Help us, Lord, to be doers of your word, to hear your word with submissive hearts. Lord, where we need comfort, please provide it through your word. Where we need correction or challenge, Lord, I pray that you would provide that. Lord, please sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read this first section, verse 1 through 4, Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the skies red. And in the morning, it will be, a it will be stormy today for the skies red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. 
Now, in this passage, what we see in verse 1 is the Pharisees and Sadducees confronting Jesus. And then the rest of the paragraph, verse 2 through 4, we see Jesus' response. Now, just a few things I want you to notice. First off, you've got Pharisees and Sadducees here together. Now, that's a really, really strange pair if you know anything about these two groups. These two groups are very influential uh, religiously, politically, very in influential groups, Pharisees and Sadducees. But they absolutely despised each, each other. They disagreed in the way they understood God's law. They disagreed in the way they understood um, political influence, all these things. They despised each other. They hated each other. And, and yet right here, we see Pharisee and Sadducees together, locked arms, united against a common enemy. And that happens, right? A common enemy has a tendency to, to unite enemies. And that's what we see here, except the common enemy is actually Jesus himself. Now, I want you to think about that for just a minute, because they're going to confront Jesus. They despise, they, they, they despise him so much that they drop their differences for just a moment. And I just want you to think about that. What, what kind of hated must Jesus be for these two enemies to lock arms to oppose him? I was thinking this would, be, this would almost be like, you know, Republicans and Democrats coming together, you know, and locking arms against a common enemy, and yet far worse, and yet a whole lot worse. But this is, this is, this is Jesus being so hated, so despised, that he causes typical enemies, Pharisees and Sadducees, to join forces and unite together. Now, this would have been a real tripping point for a lot of people as it relates to following Jesus. And I want you to think about that. They were, they were expecting a Messiah, but they were not expecting a Messiah that would be this hated, hated by all. They were expecting a Messiah, but not one that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that all of them would reject and oppose. This would have been a, a real tripping point for people. If you remember, even Jesus' disciples back in chapter 15, verse 12, you remember what happened when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees? They, they are really concerned about it. And they say, Jesus, you know that you, have, that you offended them when you said those things. So they were, they were tempted to be overly concerned about offending these Pharisees. Now think about what they're thinking now. They're following Jesus. And here they are, not only the Pharisees, but even the Sadducees traveling in from Jerusalem to Galilee. And they're, and they're confronting their leader. They're confronting the one that they're following. Man, if they were worried about offending them earlier, they sure enough would be tempted to be worried about that now. Now, this kind of thing has actually kept people out of heaven. This kind of thing has actually condemned people to hell. I want to read a verse to you in John Chapter 12. Listen to this. Many even of the authorities. This is in verse 42. John 12, 42. Even many of the authorities believed in him. They believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Imagine the pressure. This is a tripping point for some people that the Pharisees and Sadducees opposed Jesus. And then it says, for they loved, they loved the glory that comes from man more than 
the glory that comes from God. They thought, yeah, yeah, he might be the Messiah, but they're not going to confess it. Why? They love the glory that comes from man. They had fear of the Pharisees. These people opposed to Christ. This was a tripping point for people that led people to hell. If you want to be a follower of Christ, I'm going to read one more verse to you from John. John 15, verse 18. If you want to, this, is, this is a reminder to us that if you want to be a follower of Christ, you must be willing to join the fellowship of the hated. That's what the church is, fellowship of the hated. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Hated Jesus so much that enemies joined forces just to oppose him. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Grace Community Church, I want to take this as just a moment to plead with you, to plead with you. The Lord calls you to live a life that's going to look very strange to the world. The, 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 the Lord Jesus calls you to do things that the world's actually going to despise and hate. And I want to invite you into that, to, to embrace the fellowship of the hated. And don't be like these that are unfaithful to the Lord because they are more concerned with the glory that comes from men than they are the glory that comes from God. Now, what the Pharisees and Sadducees did, look at it in verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1. It says, they came to test him. You see that in verse 1? They came to test him. Now, that's not that good kind of testing where you're testing some situation or testing some teacher because you really, really want to know the truth. Like Acts 17, 11 with the Bereans, they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying is true. This is not that kind of testing. It's not the kind of testing like, like 1 John 4, 1, where it says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Test the spirits to see what's from God. It's not that kind of good testing. They've already got their mind made up about Jesus and they want to discredit him. They want to defame him. They want to devalue him. They were acting like the Israelites in the wilderness. Do you remember this? The Israelites in the wilderness. Numbers 14 verse 22 it says, God says this about those Israelites. You have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice. That's the kind of thing that they were doing. You have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice. Their distrust in God had led them to disobedience. They were living towards God as if God had not done an abundance of things to prove his faithfulness and his goodness and his glory. This testing from the Pharisees and Sadducees is a satanic testing. It's exactly what we see Satan doing in Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 and 7. You remember that story? He takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and says, Hey, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, why don't you jump, you know, cast yourself down from here? And he quotes a couple of Bible verses out of context and says, You know, the Father will deliver you. And Jesus' response was, Deuteronomy 6, 16, You shall not test, should not test the Lord your God. In other words, Satan is saying, prove yourself to be God by a miracle of my own choosing. Prove it. And this is exactly what we see the Pharisees 
and the Sadducees doing? It says they test him. Look at verse 1. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Prove you are who you say you are by a miracle of my own choosing, just like Satan himself. They tested him and said, please, maybe not please, but asked him to show them, show them a sign from heaven. I want you to think about how offensive this would have been. First off, Jesus has already been shown an abundance of, of signs with healing and raising the dead and miracles. He's been showing all kind of signs that he is who he claims to be. He's not of this world. This is offensive to him. Show us another sign. Show us a sign from heaven that you are who you say you are. He's already been doing that. And second, listen, Jesus is the sign from heaven. Look at his life. Look at who he is. Look at what he's like. Look at his, as, as it continues on, look at his death and his resurrection. That's what we're going to be pointed to in the sign of Jonah here in just a moment. Look at these things. He is the sign from heaven. His death and his resurrection and his life is all the proof that any human needs. But this is the problem. These Pharisees and these Sadducees, they're not asking for a sign from a place of faith. Believing what Jesus has already said and what he's already revealed. They're not asking from a place of faith. They're asking from a place of unbelief and rejection of Christ. Most of these people are going to continue to reject Christ even after he shows that sign of Jonah and is raised from the dead. And this ought to remind us of that story. If you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And they both die. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom and it says that the rich man is burning in hell. Remember that story? And the rich man is pleading with Abraham, Abraham, please, please just send, just send Lazarus to my brothers so that they'll believe and they won't come to this place of torment. Please just send them. And Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. They've got the written word of God. They've got Moses and the prophets. And, and, and the, rich man, the rich man says, no, 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 but, but listen, if they see a man risen from the dead, then they will believe. And, Abra and Abraham says, if they, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, if they reject the written words of God, they will not believe even if one rises from the dead. Show us a sign. The Sadducees and Pharisees say, show us a sign. Now, we still see this in our world today, right? We still see this in our world today. If God would just show me a sign from heaven, then I will follow him. If God would just show me a sign, then I'll follow him. No, you won't. No, you won't. And here's how I know you won't. Because you've already rejected all the other signs that God has given you up to this point. God's creation and all the glory of his creation. God's word has been given to you. These prophecies of old from, from the prophets of old that has been fulfilled already. His death, his resurrection, his power to change lives. He's given you all of this and you reject it. And you say, if he just showed me a sign, I'd follow him. No, you wouldn't. You could see a friend rise from the dead. And if you're rejecting him now, you're rejecting his word now, you'll continue to do so. Now, Jesus' response, what was Jesus' response to this testing from the Pharisees and the Sadducees? 
Now, he could have done anything. I want you to understand that. He, they, they could have said, show us a sign from heaven. And he could have said, okay, and lightning bolt just kill their camels right there. Game over. He could have responded that way, but he didn't. And we see how he responded in verses 2 through 4. And the first thing he does is he begins in verse 2 and 3 to confront their ignorance about the signs of the times. He begins to confront their ignorance about the signs, signs of the times. He says, you know, you guys, you're, you're able to observe the signs that help you pick up on weather, weather patterns. He says, y'all are able to do that. You're able to, you know, look at certain, observe certain signs and pick up certain weather, weather patterns. But, but, you, but you're ignorant to the signs of the time. So, so you're able to look at this and say, okay, so the weather will be like this if I see this particular sign. But Jesus is telling them, but, but God the Son, the Son of God, is standing right in front of you. God incarnate, God made flesh, and you're ignorant to it. You can't see it. You're blind to it. You think about Jesus there. Jesus is there just flexing his dominance over demons. They've seen it. Over sickness, over, over uh, disease and sin, even over nature itself as he's stopping storms and walking on water. He's just showing his dominance and they can't see it. They just want to trap him in his words. Can you just show us another sign? All of human history, if you think about the coming of Christ, all of human history, we read about the very beginning of it in Genesis, and all of it is leading up to this one moment where, where Christ Jesus, God Almighty, takes on human flesh and comes into the world to save sinners, and it's happening right in front of their eyes, and they're completely missing it, blind. You can distinguish signs about the weather, but man, you're ignorant to the signs of the times. In verse 4, if you look at verse 4, Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Evil and adulterous. Unbelief towards Jesus really is evil. So often that sin gets put into the wrong category as if it's some sort of neutral ground. Somewhere. No, no, this says evil. Unbelief towards Jesus is an evil thing. Hebrews 3.12 uses this phrase, an evil, unbelieving heart. An evil, unbelieving heart. And he calls them adulterous. And he's not talking about their sexual immorality. He's talking about a spiritual adultery here. The prophets of old would use this language toward Israel over and over again as they were whoring after false gods. And he says this about them here. You adulterous generation. We see the same thing in James 4.4. 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? Unbelief towards Jesus, sin towards God. It is an evil, evil thing, an adulterous thing. I mean, think of the anger that produces in you of a, of a spouse that you love being unfaithful to you. Unbelief and sin is adulterous and evil. Now, after calling them evil, in verse 4 right here, after calling them evil and adulterous, it says, 
that Jesus left them and departed. Literally, he abandoned them. And we're about to have a big shift in, this, in the Gospel of Matthew as the next passage is going to be really like the mountain peak of the Gospel. We'll talk about that in a minute. And everything shifts after this. And right here you've got this, this note of he leaves them now. He, he abandons them. He departs from them. So evil, evil and adulterous generation, and then he's out of here. He's gone. Now that might seem a little bit brash for a lot of us in this culture. And this is the culture where the greatest commandment is to be soft, and the second is like it. Never say anything direct to your neighbor. And in this culture, that might sound very brash, right? But as I've reminded us many, many times, as a Christian, you've got to have this sort of category for things like this. You evil and adulterous generation. Listen to me from, this is the cross reference in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 11. Let me just read this to you real quick. In Luke 11 verse 45, we're talking about the same thing here. He's talking to these Pharisees and these Sadducees. And apparently as he was saying these things, there were some lawyers listening on as well. And it says this in verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher... In saying these things, you insult us also. So they say, Jesus, you insulted them. And, And then in saying these things, you insult us also. Jesus' response, and he said, woe to you lawyers. Woe to you also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. We need to be encouraged to have a category for this kind of language. We see it here coming from the lips of Jesus himself. Now, before we leave this confrontation, we need to deal with one phrase. We need to make sure we don't leave out one phrase. And it's this phrase right here in verse 4. It says, the sign of Jonah. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But listen, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, what does that mean, the sign of Jonah? And it's already been, Jesus already taught this back in Matthew chapter 12. Let me read this to you. Matthew 12, verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. This has happened before. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. See, this has already been mentioned by Jesus. But right here we get more explanation about what that means. What do you mean they're going to get the sign of the prophet Jonah? Verse 40 says, for, here's our explanation, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the sign of Jonah is about Jesus the Christ, crucified for sinners, but risen from the dead. You want a sign? Here's a sign. I'm going to go to the cross and be crucified for sinners. I'm going to endure the wrath of God for my people. And then after taking the wrath of God and dying and being buried in a tomb, three days later, I'm going to walk again on planet Earth for all to see. For our witnesses to see. 
the sign of the resurrection. This also happened. I want to I want you to hear this in another place. This happened at another time, and I'm going to read it to you from John chapter 2, verse 19. Verse 18, actually. Listen to this. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And what are they asking for? A sign. What sign do you, sh- do you show us? And listen to his response. A little bit different, but same point. Jesus answered to him, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The sign of Jonah. He's talking about the temple of his body. Go ahead. Destroy this temple. You want a sign? Destroy this temple, and in three days... I'll raise it up. The resurrection of Christ is the sign from heaven. When somebody asks you for a sign, point them to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. How do we know? By the resurrection from the dead. There was an empty tomb. They couldn't find him. There were eyewitnesses that saw him walk on earth again. This is what they preached in the book of Acts. We saw him. We ate with him. We drank with him. He's risen from the dead. Acts chapter 17 verse 31 says he's, he has given proof, evidence, proof of this to all. It's the sign by raising him from the dead. The death and resurrection of Jesus is all the sign that any human should ever need. Now, verse 5 through 12, so we kind of pick up a new scene here. But it's connected because now Jesus is going to warn his disciples. They sort of get on a boat and they cross the sea and they come to the other side. And Jesus is going to warn his disciples about the leaven of these Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's read verse 5 through 12 together. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay. Now in verse 5 through 7, we've got something very uh, very human going on. Very common. Very common in the natural realm. The disciples forgot something. Okay. 
They forgot to bring bread. The Gospel of Mark tells us they're, they're on the boat and they realize they only have one loaf. Likely they're very, very hungry. And this hunger and the fact that, oh no, we forgot bread, this, it's consuming their minds. This thing in the natural realm of what are they going to eat is literally consuming their minds while they're on this boat and while they land on the other side. And in the middle of this happening in the natural realm of uh, longing for bread, worried because they forgot bread, this natural realm type stuff, while their mind is there, Jesus teaches them. He gives them a warning to teach them a spiritual lesson. Now, the warning he gives them, the spiritual lesson is this. You see it there in verse 6? Watch and beware of the leaven... So he uses sort of bread-type language. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Okay? So they're worried about this thing in the natural realm. Oh, no, we forgot bread. Man, I'm hungry. They're, they're worried about that. Their mind's consumed there. Jesus gives warning, spiritual lesson. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What's their response? Their response, verse 7, is, we brought no bread. And that's almost humorous, right? They're so consumed thinking about their, this, this you know, natural realm desire, their hunger, and this need for bread that they're completely missing the point. Now, don't give them too hard of a time, right? Because we've all, we probably would hate to admit how many times we've done this. We've been so consumed with thoughts in the natural realm that we're completely missing the spiritual things, the spiritual lesson. And so right now, Verse 7, verse 5 through 7, they don't understand. Jesus has given the spiritual lesson, he's given the warning, and they don't understand. Now, by the time we get to verse 12, guess what's going to happen? They're, they're going to understand. Look at it there in verse 12. They're going to actually understand. So, so right now, they don't understand. But by the time that we get to verse 12, they will understand. So what does Jesus do to get them from not understanding to understanding? How does he get them from asleep to awake? From blind to these spiritual things to awaken to it. From consumed with the natural to awaken to the spiritual. How does he move them from one place to the other here? And what we see in verse 8 through 11 is how Jesus gets them there. And what we see here are five questions, five questions, and then he repeats the warning at the end. So five questions, and then he repeats the warning at the end to get them from not understanding to understanding. Let's dig into each one of these questions. Question number one. Oh, you of little faith. You see it there? Now, he doesn't say no faith. He just says weak little faith. It's little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Now, this question was meant to awaken them out of their obsession with the natural realm. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? It's meant to awaken them. Why are you worried about these temporal things? Why is your mind consumed by these temporal things? Now, Jesus had taught them this in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember it? Don't be anxious. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? 
Your Father knows you need all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He's already taught them this sort of mindset to not be consumed with just the natural realm, with temporal things. And so this question is meant to awaken them to that. Why are you discussing bread? I'm not talking about bread. Why are you discussing that? Question number two. You see it here? Do you not yet perceive... Do you not yet perceive? Now, y'all, that's faith language. That's the language of faith. Do you not perceive something? This is about spiritual perception. They, they, they perceive some things in the physical realm. They perceive that they forgot bread. They perceive that they're hungry. But this is about spiritual perception. Another way to say that is this is about spiritual seeing what you perceive this is about spiritual eyes another way to say that is th this is about the eyes of faith do you still not have the eyes of faith are you still not seeing or as it says it here do you not yet perceive you see what's happening is throughout these Gospels, we see Jesus. They're, of, they're, they're men of little faith. And Jesus is more and more and more opening their eyes to the glory of Christ. Opening their eyes to the truth. More and more, he's helping them to see with spiritual eyes. Another way to say that, he's increasing their faith. If you go look at this parallel passage in, in the Gospel of Mark, same story. Right after he asked them this question, do you not perceive? Is your heart still hardened? It jumped straight to a miracle. It's that miracle where, if you remember it, the blind man and Jesus heals him, but partially. Remember that? Jesus has all the power, all the power he needs to fully heal him in that moment. And yet the way Jesus does is he partially heals him and says, I can see now, but I see men like trees walking. And then he does something again and fully heals him. He's teaching this lesson of this progressive, more and more ongoing, opening their eyes. Do you not yet perceive? That's language of faith. He wants them to increase in their faith. Now, what would Jesus do to open their eyes? To awaken their faith. What will Jesus do? And you can see it. And this is so beautiful. Don't miss this. You can see it in question three and question four. Look at question three. Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Question four. Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Now, y'all, those are faith-awakening questions. Do you not remember? It's not just an intellectual thing. Of course they remembered. Of course they knew about it. But he wants them to be awakened. Don't you remember what I did to feed the 5,000? Don't you remember what I did to feed the 4,000? Those are faith-awakening questions. Remember. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done. He improves their spiritual perception by prodding their memory. He improves their spiritual perception by prodding their memory. Now, faith is provoked, and I hope you know this. Faith is provoked in the people of God when they remember. 
When they gaze into the Word of God, and they're, as they're gazing into the Word of God, they're remembering who God is and what He's done and what He's promised. And that's producing something. It's provoking a faith. It's, it's what gets you from, they don't get it, to verse 12. Man, they get it. This is how we awaken ourselves to faith. This is how we perceive with spiritual eyes. We get our eyes on the word of God and remember who he is. Remember what he's done. This is how we do this with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to me. Imitate Christ. When you see somebody, a brother, a sister that you love in the church, and they seem weak in faith in the moment, or they seem, they seem like they're just not getting it, or they seem like they're in a down place, what do you do? Imitate Christ. Remember, brother. Remember, sister, you say, oh, but they already know that. That's, that's fine if they already know that. They already knew that Jesus fed the 5,000. But remind them of God's word. Remind them of who God is and what he's done from his word. This is how you provoke faith and spiritual perception in the brothers and sisters that you love. Now, there's a psalm, and I love it so much, I'm tempted to just go to this psalm. Psalm 77. And just stay there way too long. And then we'd be done. And you say, I thought you were preaching Matthew 16. So let me just read a few phrases. And I want to refer you back to it. Psalm 77. What you have happening in Psalm 77. Is you've got this. Um, it's an expression of someone that is downcast. Man, he's low. In fact, he says, there's a phrase that says, his soul refuses to be comforted. He wants comfort, but it's like his soul just refuses to be comforted. You see that in verse 2. But what's he doing? Verse 3. When I remember God, he's trying. Remember God, I moan. When I meditate, he's remembering, he's meditating, he's trying. But when he meditates, it says, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. It's like he's trying to remember, he's trying to meditate, he's trying to awaken faith in himself. He's trying, but it's not happening. He's moaning, he still can't sleep at night. So what does he do? Well, he doesn't change course. Verse 6, verse 5 says, I consider the days of old. That's just like remembering, meditating. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. He's still fighting. Do you see it? And yet you keep reading in the psalm and he can't find comfort and he can't find comfort. He can't find faith. And so what does he do? Verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. He didn't change course. He keeps pressing in. I'm going to remember the deeds of the Lord. I'll remember your wonders from of old. I will ponder Meditate, ponder, remember all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And you keep reading the psalm and you find out he has a breakthrough. This kind of remembering. Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets you picked up? Do you not remember the 4,000 I fed? How many baskets? Do you not remember that? He's provoking faith. And these disciples. Now question five. Right after question number five. He, he repeats the warning. Almost exactly the same. So after the fifth question is. How is it. 
that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread. And then he gives the warning again. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, this is a corrective. This is, this, is, this is instructive, and it's corrective. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak to you about bread? So he's, he's speaking to them as if this is an urgent matter. I need you to get this. You need to get this. I'm not talking to you about bread. What I've got to teach you right now is urgent. Get off the natural realm and, and come learn this spiritual lesson. It's urgent right now. And you can feel that in that fifth question. And then what do we see in verse 12? Verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So what happens in verse 12? They get it. They get it now. They, they, they understand. They have a spiritual understanding. They are awakened out of an obsession with the natural things. What do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? And they're brought into this big picture about seeking first the kingdom of God. And specifically here, we're not being warned about bread right now. What we're being warned about is false teaching. They understood that. Man, okay, I see the big picture now. When he said, beware and watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, he ain't talking about bread. He's talking about false teaching. The teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, I want you to consider the context for just a minute, specifically the context that follows this in Matthew 16, because I think it'll help you, it'll help you grasp something. The next passage, as I've already said, in Matthew 16, so the next passage we're going to, um, next time we're in the Gospel of Matthew together, is Matthew 16, verse 13 through 20. And as I said, that passage, Matthew 16, verse 13 through 20, is like the mountain peak of the Gospel of Matthew. Everything has been leading up to this moment. And what happens in that passage is Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? And they say, some people say this, and some people say this. All this false doctrine, this false teaching about Christ that leads to these false confessions that condemn people. Some people say this, some people say this. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, man, sound Christology right here. He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then Jesus just explodes with affirmation and teaching. He says, Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. And you're Peter on this rock. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And, and, and I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. All these, he just explodes into this. Now, I want you to try to think about that for just a minute. That, that moment in the Gospel of Matthew is so pivotal. This next passage coming up. That everything after that in the Gospel of Matthew changes. I mean, but you can even go read verse 21 and you see it just starts sounding like, man, we're, we're heading in a different direction now. We're moving towards Jerusalem, towards the cross now. Okay? Now I want you to think about this. It's very fitting, if you take our passage today and that one coming up next in the Gospel of Matthew, it's very fitting that just before this pivotal section, right? Who do men say that I am? 
false doctrine, false confessions, condemning people. Who do you say that I am? That's the first real confession, real Christian confession, Christology. It's, it's fitting that right before that, we would get this strong and urgent warning about false teaching or false doctrine. Beware. Watch and beware concerning the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so this is what I want to do. Uh, Grace Community Church, I want us to close out our time with exhortation along this line of, you see the phrase in verse 6, watch and beware of false teaching. He repeats it in verse 11, beware. Now this, his exhortation, it stretches beyond these first disciples that heard us to, to us as well. It stretches beyond just the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees to all kind of, of versions of false teachings that causes damage all over this world. Beware. Watch and beware of false teaching. This is a reminder to us. And let's just take some time to think about this. That doctrine really does matter. Teaching and doctrine really does matter. Doctrine should be a concern of every single Christian, not just super Christians. Every single Christian, uh, uh, not, not just pastors, not just seminary students, right? This, this is not, this doctrine ought to be a concern. It's very important. Ought to be a concern of every Christian because every Christian has been given a new heart and eyes open to see the glory of Christ in his word. It's a reminder to us that doctrine really matters. Now, there's so many different ways. We don't have time to go into them all, but there's so many different ways that the importance of doctrine gets minimized in our world, and especially in our culture. And I want to encourage you that the Bible does not minimize doctrine. It does not minimize teaching. I, I remember one moment that stands out to me is uh, myself and Nick Starkey were sent by this church to go to India for a time, and we were supposed to be teaching New Testament survey there in India to a group of pastors. And I remember preparing for that for a long time, and, and New Testament survey as in just sort of an overview of all the books in the New Testament. And it was amazing to me. And I believe Nick could say the same. Amazing. Just the focus of sound doctrine and the condemnation of false doctrine and false teaching is all over the New Testament. All these letters, just go read all these letters to these churches. And again and again, what he's dealing with is them believing false doctrine. So it gets minimized in our culture, but it's a big deal in God's word. Doctrine really does matter. You can see it in the definition of the church. 1 Timothy 3 verse 15, it calls the church the pillar and the ground of the truth. We're to hold the truth high. We're to hold it firm. It's the definition of the church. Doctrine matters. You can see this in the, in, the, in the mission that we're on, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in what? Teaching them. Doctrine matters. You can see it in the way God has ordered his church. Think about the way God has ordered his church. There are teachers appointed by God, gifted by God in every, uh, in, in every local church. There are teachers. That's not our idea. That's not man's idea. That's Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. 
That's 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's just the Bible that appointed teachers in within a local church, within the body of Christ. Now, now what does that mean? Just a good thing to go listen to? I know my voice isn't, inter- this isn't just entertaining. My voice isn't just entertaining. Why would God give teachers? Why would he design it this way? It, it, would, it would insinuate that the church is full of learners. If God puts teachers in his church, then that means the church is full of learners. Which, by the way, that's what the word disciple means. It means you're a learner. Doctrine really matters to Christians. It really, really matters. Why would God order his church so that expository preaching is what he calls us to? 1 Timothy 4.13 Timothy, give yourself to the reading of the scripture and to the teaching and to the exhortation. Why would he design his church that way? Because the church is full of learners. They want the word of God read to them and they want to be taught the word of God. They want to learn it. They want to grow in their knowledge of it. Doctrine really does matter. We see that in the way God's ordered the family. Christian families are supposed to be families where where, uh, parents are supposed to bring up their children, Ephesians 6, 4, in the training and in the admonition of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 6 says, these words that I command you today, these words need to be in your heart. And you should teach them diligently. Not just teach them, man. Teach these words diligently to your children. Talk about these words when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Man, God has designed the Christian family to be a family full of doctrine. We're reminded here that doctrine really does matter. I think too many Christians today, they understand a deep concern about Doctrine to be just like a stuffy intellectualism. You know, I just like looking smart and I never get my boots dirty. It's that sort of thing. And, I, and what I want us to be, I, in fact, I thought about this story. Y'all remember the story of William Tyndale in the 1500s, burned at the stake for translating the scripture into the English language? You remember his desire? He had that little desire. It's kind of a famous one. He he desired that the plowboy knew the scriptures better than the pope. Don't you love that? And that's what I want us to be. Grace Community Church, a bunch of simple, humble people that are full with a heart of fire for sound doctrine because it's about our God. It's about our Christ. It's about salvation. It's about the mission of God. That we would be people that are simple and humble, little plow boys and plow girls that love the word of God. Doctrine really does matter. Now, Jesus calls, he gives the warning about leaven here. And I want to highlight that for a moment. False teaching according to what Jesus says here, is like leaven. Now, this is really important. So anybody in the room that understands false doctrine, or maybe you're growing in your understanding of true doctrine, and false, you, you understand it, but you're tempted to take it lightly. You're tempted to deal with it with kid gloves, right? This is for you. Listen, Jesus calls it here leaven. He says, beware Don't take it lightly. Beware is the word here. And then he calls it leaven. Now leaven, what comes to your mind? Maybe the verse in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's this idea of unleavened bread and then you place, it's a little bit, just a little bit of leaven there and it begins to spread and influence and leaven the whole bunch. 
This reminds us of the destructiveness of false teaching. Listen, a little leaven. It's like leaven. It's so destructive. It destroys the family. Parents, you better teach your children to love sound doctrine and to know it. It destroys churches. Brothers and sisters of Christ, let's, let's protect each other. Let's watch over each other. Let's know God's word and fight against false doctrine. It destroys souls. Literally, people go to hell because they believe false things about Jesus. Now, last thing I'll say, the, the phrase here in verse 6 is watch and beware. Some versions say, watch out, watch out, be warned, caution concerning false teaching. This is a call for us to be watchmen on the wall. Every one of us who are in Christ, watching out like watchmen on the wall, watching out for yourself, your own soul and what you believe, watching out for your family, watching out for this church. You need to be so adamant, I mean so adamant about submitting everything you hear to the words of God and, and even submitting everything you think to the words of God because we know our own hearts that we're foolish left to ourselves. We know nothing. We need, we need, we need uh, light from God's word. That we can stand on it is true. 2 Timothy 2.15 says study. Here's a path to get there. Study. To show yourself approved to God. A workman that doesn't have to be ashamed. But rightly divides the word of truth. Brothers and sisters, I want to call you in that. Study. Show yourself approved. So that you can be a worker. Not ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. And what will happen, and this is the zeal. It's like leaven. It's so destructive. Jude 3 says, contend. You know that. There's a time to fight. Some of us grew up and you always heard, uh, fighting's always bad. No, it's not. There's a time to fight. Jude 3 says, contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. I, I want you to have that heart to where you're studying, you know God's word, you feel a warning, watch out, beware of the teachings, of the doctrine, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you feel that. And when you need to, you're able to rise up and contend earnestly to fight, to make war for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray that the Lord would help us do that well. Father, thank you so much for these words. Thank you, Lord, for all this sweet insight into who you are, Lord Jesus. You're, you're the God of miracles, Lord. You raised the dead. You healed the sick. You walked on water. You stopped storms. Lord, thank you for letting us see that. And yet when someone asks for a sign, Lord, you don't bow to their testing. And I praise you for that, God. You're full of boldness and courage and wisdom, Lord. Lord, thank you so much for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Thank you, Lord, that you were crucified for sinners like us and risen from the dead and the tomb is empty and we can put our trust in you. God, we give you praise for that. Thank you for the sign of Jonah. 
Lord, if there's any here today that are unbelieving, I pray that they feel the weight of that, of the evil heart of unbelief. Any here today, Lord, that have rejected you and walked away from you, Lord, like these Pharisees and Sadducees, Lord, I pray you'd save their souls, that the sign of Jonah would be everything to them. And God, I praise you, Lord, that you're so compassionate and kind to these disciples, Lord. God, we feel, we feel so much like them, Lord. Completely missing the point at times. So consumed in this natural realm, Lord. We know that, that we're like that, Lord. We're like that. And you're so kind and you're so compassionate, Lord, to open our eyes and increase our faith. And remind us, Lord, of, of your word and who you are and what you've done. And God, please help us, Lord. Help us to remind ourselves through your word. Help us in this church, Lord, to be faith provokers, Lord. To stir, each, stir up each other's faith, Lord, through your word. Help us, God, to do that. And Lord, I pray that you'd make us a people that love sound doctrine, Lord. And hate false doctrine that condemns people to hell. God, make us a people full of the knowledge of your word and increasing more and more. God, I pray you fill this church with learners of the truth. God, I pray that you fill our families here, Lord. Families that are saturated by your word. And Lord, I pray that you would protect this church from false doctrine. Lord, unless you build the house, we labor in vain. Lord, if you removed your hand for even a second, Lord, we would be in a terrible place. Please, God, protect your church from false doctrine. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.